If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. That is our text this Lord's Day. If you are new to Bloomfield Baptist, uh, let me share with you, I've been walking through the book of Genesis since last January. We are walking through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I say that as a preface because uh, outside of that, we probably wouldn't be looking at Genesis 34 today. Genesis 34 is a chapter which, if you've not read it already, you probably can tell just by the heading, The Defiling of Dinah. It's a chapter that deals with immorality. It's a chapter that deals with the depths of sin. But we are looking at it this Lord's Day because it is part of God's Word. And as we know, 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That all Scripture, every text we have, this chapter before us is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That even when we look at texts like this one we're going to look at today and see the depravity of man, there's something here for us to learn. You see, there's two approaches that we can take to the Scripture. One is we can ignore those passages that speak of the depths of sin. But if we do that, we do ourselves a disservice because unless you see the depths of sin, then you don't see the power of the cross over sin. And so as we look at this today, I want you to remember that. Remember what it is Jesus has dealt with. And remember the darkness of our own hearts, where it is we tend to go, the things we are tempted to be lured towards, that the depths that sin takes us to and the consequences of it ultimately in the Scripture that we see. The consequence of death. But I hope as you see that in this text today, you also see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that introduction, uh, if you are able, out of reverence for God's word, if you would stand as I read for us Genesis 34. Uh, Remembering we are picking up at this point in Genesis, uh, Jacob has returned now uh, to the land of promise, to his father's land. uh, But he is struggling to trust God. And in that struggle... He has settled in a place called Shechem. And we're going to find out today what a bad decision that was. Because it is there that there's great depravity. And you'll see now how that depravity affects his family. Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's Word says to us. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, The prince of the land saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And when Hamor, the son, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father, 
And to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will deal with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters only on this condition. Will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people? When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, we will not, uh, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours. Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of his city. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and all the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Shall we treat our sister like a prostitute? If you would, pray with me. Father God, in Christ's name we ask that You would teach us from this Word both of our great need for the Gospel as well as of what it is is accomplished through the Gospel of how Christ has conquered sin and death. We pray for this in His name. Amen. Be seated. A few years back, Sandy and I were working with a different ministry and we were doing some training. And part of that training was to take a, a seminary class on different worldviews and understanding those who don't believe in biblical Christianity and why they believe what they believe and specifically what do they think of the Bible. And during that class we were out in Colorado and 
we went up to Boulder, Colorado to, to interview some folks. And if you've ever been to Boulder, Colorado, you can find people with many, many different world views there. We were walking down the street and I remember seeing a, a lady sitting to the side. She was uh, reading tarot cards. And I thought, well, there's a different world view. And so I sat down with her and she was very gracious to, to talk with me. And we began to have this conversation about belief and about God and about the Bible. When it came to the Bible, I asked her, what, what do you think of the Bible? And she said, oh, that, that, that's a man-made book. And I said, well, tell me what you mean by that. And she went on to, to tell a rather fascinating tale of how, how it all started with kings and how kings wanted to rule over their people and subject them. So they'd come up with this whole notion of Christianity and they'd written all these stories down in the Bible in order to subject people and make them listen to them and follow them. Well, her fascinating tale had a number of problems with it, one of which was, other than her own imagination, there was no real evidence of it. But I think a, a greater objection to what she said is this. If you and I were going to sit down and write a book to convince people to trust in God, we probably wouldn't write Genesis 34. This is not the kind of text that speaks well of God's people. Uh, this is not the kind of text that we write to try to convince someone to believe in God. This is a text that's sort of a black eye on the history of Israel that deals with the utter depravity of man. And it's for that very reason that I think it helps authenticate that this is a word from God, not from man, because man would not put this here. In fact, just preparing for today's sermon, I found that a number of commentators completely skip over Genesis 34. Uh, some great link talk about why you should never preach on Genesis 34. Uh, one basically said that as a whole, it's a useless text to preach on. With believing people won't even comment on the text. <laughs> Would man ever come up with this? I don't think so. I think it is here though for a purpose. I think God in His sovereignty chooses to show us both what man can do when he trusts the Lord and what man does when he does not trust the Lord. And I believe the Lord shows us the depths to which sin will take us in order to warn us concerning sin in our own lives and also to help us understand the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is that sin that Christ died for on the cross. And so... With that understanding, I want to walk through this text because I believe there are things here to profit each of us today. Beginning with point one there in your notes. A warning. That curiosity and carelessness often result in sin. See, there are times we, we sin because we are, we are rebelling against God. We are shaking our fist at God. But more often, I believe... We walk into sin, not out of rebellion, but, but it begins with carelessness. It begins with curiosity. This doesn't mean that we're innocent in the matter, but this is how we end up there. And we put ourselves in situations where either then we sin greatly, or others pull us into sin, or sin greatly against us. And you have an example of that in this text today. Verse 1 tells us that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob, 
went out to see the women of the land. Beginning in that verse, we need to understand, what, what are we speaking of here? What is the land that she's gone into? We left off here last Lord's Day when we talked about how, how Jacob continues to, to struggle to trust God. And so God, when Jacob was away from the land of his fathers, when he was in the land of Laban, God called him back and he tells him, he reminds him, Jacob, I'm, I'm the God you encountered at Bethel. There's this call for Jacob to come back to the land of promise, specifically to the land, the place, the city of Bethel. In fact, God will call him to that in the very next chapter. Yet when Jacob enters the land and he encounters Esau, and Esau invites him to see her, he he doesn't go there, that's good, because he should be going to Bethel. And yet, what happens? What happens is he settles in Shechem. What we know of Shechem from this text in last Lord's Day is that it was inhabited by the Hivites. These are not people of God. The, the Hivites, we know from Genesis chapter 10, were descendants of Canaan. If you've been walking with us through this study, that, that tells you something about the Hivites. You see, Canaan was cursed by God. He was cursed. And in that curse, his descendants are people who rebel against God, who are somewhat godless people. Many of them actually worship a plurality of false gods and false deities. And so the Hivites would have been one of those groups, one of those clans. Jacob settles in the land of Shechem because something draws him there. Chances are it's the commerce, it's the wealth. He sees it and he thinks about how he can, he can gain and he can grow and he, he settles there. And in doing so, Not only does he put himself in jeopardy, he puts his family in jeopardy. We see that here with his daughter Dinah. The text says she goes out to see the women of the land. Now again, there's some a range, a variance on what that can mean. On the most innocent end of things, that can mean that that Dinah is simply curious. See, these women would have lived very differently than she would have lived. They would have believed very differently than she would have believed and And perhaps she was in a position where she was under the the confines of her father's household. Her her at this point, the only daughter among all these brothers. And she wanted to go out there and just see what these women were like. She was just curious. She was drawn towards them. The other end of the spectrum, this could be a very rebellious Dinah. Who sees the sin of these women and she wants to participate in that sin. And she's drawn towards that sin. Either way, though, she makes a bad decision. She goes out towards the women of the land, the text would indicate, by herself. Now, in this culture, in this time, in fact, among some Arab cultures still today, a woman going out by herself indicated some less favorable things about that woman. They were to go out with someone, with a servant, with somewhat of a, a group of people, perhaps guardians, uh, brothers, even their father. But here we see her going out by herself, which is an indication she's kind of sneaking out there. Again, she's kind of curious. She wants to see what's going on. And yet her curiosity leads to a wicked situation because we see in verse 2 that Dinah is violated by Shechem. 
this, this prince. He, he shares his name with the name of this city. His father either named the city after him or named him after the city. Either way, he's a man of great prominence in this city. But we learn something about him in this verse. He's a man of very low character. He's a man who simply takes what he wants. Now, a side note here. In the context of Jacob's day, it was not uncommon for two groups of people when they wanted to make a treaty with one another to to arrange a marriage from their families. And it wasn't even uncommon there for one of those families to take even by force in a wicked situation like this, the daughter of one of those other peoples to force them into a relationship where they then had to make a treaty with them. I think there's some indications as you walk through this text that that may be an what Shechem was doing. He, he was forcing Jacob's hand to enter into a treaty with him. But whatever the context, it's wickedness. But notice what happens with Shechem. After he does this wicked thing against Dinah, the Scripture says that his, his soul is drawn to her that he speaks tenderly to her, that he wants to marry her, that he goes to his father and he says, I want you to get her to be my wife. Not quite the the courtship anyone would want, is it? In fact, it's a far cry from what God intended marriage to be in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, you have God looking at Adam, the need in his life, creating Eve, bringing Eve to Adam, presenting this couple to one another, and then forming this holy union that the Scripture then says, there was no shame there. And yet, you get to Genesis 34, and you have man seeing what he wants, man taking what he wants, and this whole episode is covered in shame. Even though Shechem doesn't seem to feel shame over his actions, the Scripture specifically tells us that he humiliates Dinah. He he shames her. He brings terrible shame on her. That this is what sin does. Sin takes that which God has created and perverts it and distorts it and brings us to this point of wickedness and ultimately to death. It's a terrible mess. And yet, think of how this mess came about. It started with Jacob not fully trusting God. And then from there, it it probably continued with Jacob going after that which his eyes desired in this land of Shechem. And then we see his daughter Dinah, curious. Just wanting to kind of see what's going on out there. And it results in wicked sin. And friend, that's the same pattern in our lives today. See, most of you will not leave this place shaking your fist at God saying, well, I'm just going to go out there today and I'm going to do all kinds of wickedness. That's your thought. We need to talk. (laughs) But what will happen to you and what will happen to me is it will begin with a glance. It begins with something we're curious about. Uh, I wonder, wonder what happens when I click that button and go to that place. Well, this is just, it's just one conversation. I know this isn't my spouse, but they, they seem to, to really listen to me. And we're just, we're just talking. I mean, that's kind of harmless, isn't it? Well, what I'm doing, it's, it's not as bad as what everybody else is doing. So we're okay here, right? 
and we go down this path that starts with curiosity, carelessness, and then we compromise. And we follow the the path that Scripture warns us of. James says it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's a fishing term James uses. He's saying there's a really nice bait out there and we swim right towards it. And we're enticed by it and we're lured, we're drawn to it. So what's the problem? The problem is, James says, then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. See, that's where sin always takes us, friend. It's a picture of it in Proverbs 7. You have Proverbs 7 begins with a young man lacking sense. And he goes to the wrong place, the wrong time. He gets into the wrong relationship. And then Solomon tells us this, little does he know as an ox goes to the slaughter. It's going to cost him his life. Be warned, friend. That's where sin takes us. Dinah here is curious. And Dinah here is responsible. Yet Shechem's fully responsible. He, he, he brings great harm to her. But the end of this for him and his father and their people, we'll see, will be great death. That is where sin takes us. Point two. We cannot cover sin with religious practice. That there seems to be no shame on Shechem's part, no shame on his father's part. And notice even here with Jacob. Jacob hears about what's taking place and he doesn't do anything. The Scripture says he, he holds his peace. And we tend to look at that, we want to think positive of Jacob, and we think, okay, Jacob, he's going to drop the hammer on these guys, he's just waiting for his boys to show up. But that's not what happens. What you see in the beginning of this text throughout this chapter is a a fairly passive Jacob. It's actually his sons who take action. And they do it in response to Shechem and his father proposing this treaty with them. You see, again, for them, it was probably fairly common for them to have a situation like this than to go to that that people group and say, okay, let's make a treaty now. Let's be one people now. And that's exactly what they do with Jacob. The text says they they come to Jacob. Now at this point, the text tells us that Jacob's sons were there. And we start to see they're going to respond a little different. Jacob, holding his peace, not really doing anything. Jacob's sons, they're indignant. They're angry at what's taking place. So what do Hamor and Shechem do? Well, they, they make this offer to them. They say basically this, hey, we, we want to enter into a treaty with you. And we want to marry your daughters. And we want to let you marry our daughters. And then we'll be one people. And then all this land, it'll be ours. And, and all the, the, the livestock of the land, we're going to share. And, and everything's going to work out fine because we're going to come together and we're going to enter into this agreement together. What's the problem? Think of what God has told Jacob. See, God has told Jacob, Jacob, I want you to trust me. And Jacob, as you trust me, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for your children. I'm going to provide you with many offspring. I'm going to provide land for you. But Jacob, you've got to trust me. You've got to walk with me, Jacob. 
And here comes Hamor, and what does he say to Jacob? Jacob, I want you to trust me. (laughs) Jacob, I want to enter into a treaty with you. Jacob, if we do this, I'm going to give you land, and you're going to have these daughters, and you're going to be greatly blessed. Those two don't look so dramatically different, do they? What God offers Jacob, what this enemy offers him, and yet they are very, very different. And friend, that, that's exactly what the enemy does in our life so often. See, the enemy usually doesn't come to us and say, okay, here, here's what God's laid out for you. Let me give you the exact opposite of it. What does the enemy do with Jesus? He says to him, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. Is he going to have those anyways? Absolutely. But it's the way in which the enemy offers them. See, the enemy often offers us a shortcut. <laughs> and he offers us, us a pass on faith and trust. He offers us immediate gratification. But it comes with a price. And we definitely see that in Jacob's life. And we see it in Jacob's son's lives. See, th- this is a point in Genesis 34 where what, what Jacob should do as he should look at Hamor and Shechem and say, number one, God's already promised me all of this. In fact, by the way, you're on my land. This is God's land. He's already promised me this. Offspring, I'm not concerned about that. God has promised to number my offspring as many as the stars in the sky. I'm good. What does Jacob do? But rather than, than, than trust in God and even look at Hamor and Shechem and say, oh yeah, and by the way, you're going to pay for what you did. You've sinned against my family and that's going to come at a price, a cost to you. What does he do? Well, the indication from the text is Jacob does nothing. He doesn't even speak at this point. There's no biblical record here that Jacob even responds to this offer they've put before him. It is actually his sons who respond. And we can easily glance over that and say, well, certainly Jacob wouldn't go along with this. Certainly Jacob wouldn't endorse this. But let me ask you something. See, as you read this text and you see Jacob's sons, they they have a plan of their own. It's a deceptive plan. They're going to wipe these folks out. How does Jacob respond to that? He's surprised, and he's shocked, and he's angry. What does that tell us? I think what that tells us is, is that Jacob, when he hears his son's plan, I think he's going along with that plan, not the deceptive part. You see, what Jacob's sons say at this point is they say, okay, listen, we have a plan for you. We'll enter into this treaty with you, and we'll become one with you, but something's got to happen here. See, our people are set aside by God in a covenant relationship with Him through this mark on us of circumcision. So if you want to be one with us, you've got to receive that mark too. Now they're deceiving as they're saying this. They know exactly what they're up to when they're saying this, but what does Jacob know? I think Jacob's going along with this plan. 
think Jacob may even think this is a good idea. <laughs> because Jacob is dealing loosely with the covenant of God. And friend, if you and I aren't careful, we deal loosely with it as well. Because what Jacob is saying in our vernacular today is this. If you will do these religious things, if you'll cover yourself in this religious practice, then we can be one with each other. Then you come on in. Then we can be one family of God. If you'll just do this religious thing that we've done. Do we do that today? Absolutely. We deal with people. We see them in their sin. And rather than call them to repentance and faith in the gospel, we give them a list of religious things to do. If you do this, then you're covered. If you practice this, then you're okay. If you take these steps, then you're acceptable to God. And yet the Scripture says that religious practice can never cover or atone for sin. And yet you have Jacob here, I think, in agreement saying, oh yeah, if you guys just receive this mark, then it's all good. And if we're not careful in the church today, we do the same thing. We say to people, well, if you'll just walk this aisle, we're good. If you get baptized, then, then everything's good. If you just join this church, then, then everything's fine. Should we be baptized and join the church? Absolutely. But in response to a faith placed in Christ. And if we miss that part of it, if we just do those things to walk through the motion, then we are no better than the men of Hamor City who think if they mark themselves in this way, then all of a sudden it's all good. But we reduce the gospel to that so often. We're in a season right now where many believing people practice Lent. And I find something peculiar about that, and it's this. It's that oftentimes, for some, not for all, what that becomes is, I know I've done all this wrong, but if I just give up this, this, and this, it'll be okay. As if going without... Facebook for 40 days can cleanse you of sin. We have missed something there if that's what we think. And we have brought ourselves to the point of saying, well, if I just do this, this, and this, then I'll be okay. But there's a reason that we won't be. And we see it unfold in this in many passages. And it's this, point three. It's because the wages of sin is death. It's because what must be paid for our sin is not going without something for a series of days. It's death. It's receiving the wrath of God for sin. Sin leads to death. Sin brings death. You, you see death in this passage as a result of sin. Because Hamor and his son, they managed to sell all the men of their city on this idea. <laughs> Like, hey, we've got an agreement here. These men are peaceful and they want to be one with us and we're going to profit and they're going to profit and, and, and we're going to be able to marry their daughters and they're going to marry our daughters and everything's going to go great. Got to do this little thing over here, but 
and, and they completely miss that there's been sin, that, that Shechem has sinned against Dinah, that that sin comes at a cost. And in this one, it's a great cost. Because Simeon and Levi, these are the, the sons of Jacob, these are the, the brothers of Dinah. That they're going to take lives. Scripture says as an opportune time, they come into that city and they take out the sword and they kill and they murder and they avenge. We have to be careful at this point that we don't read that and go, yeah, that's what they should do. Wipe them all out. And we don't need to do that because we need to realize that what Simeon and Levi are doing here is they're basically saying what some of us have said. Do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> of course you should do that to them because look at what they did to you. Well, who are they to do that? And, and they had it coming to them. Well, nobody can blame you for that because look at what they did to you. See, we have to be careful, friend, that we don't fall into what Simeon and Levi fall into here. This thought that somehow I can deal with sin with more sin. Because think of what happens. These men have stolen from them. They have taken the purity of their sister. So how do they respond? They just steal back. And they go far beyond what had been done to their sister. They kill all these men, and then the rest of the brothers show up. And what do they do? Well, let's plunder the city. Let's take it all. That's not justice. That's sin. Because in this passage... There's a big gaping hole. There's something that's missing. You see, neither Jacob nor his sons seem to be at all considered with the glory of God. They're only concerned about themselves. Look at how Jacob responds. His boys come back, and what does he say? Well, you did it now, guys. (laughs) My name is Stink. That's what he says. He doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say, what were you thinking? He doesn't say, way to go. He's concerned with one thing and one thing only. His own name. Guys, by doing this, do you know what you've done to me? Doesn't say a word about Dinah. Doesn't say a word about the Lord. Just says, look what you did to me. Now now look at what my name's going to be. And now here I am, and I've just bought a piece of land, and I was hoping to get more, but who's going to want to go into business with me now? And he's concerned about himself and no one else. And I don't think his sons are much better. Because their response is, well, well, should they treat our sister like this? Maybe they're not just concerned with themselves, but their concern is for the family. Well, who are they to treat our family this way? You treat my family like this, then you're going to get this back, and you're going to know we're serious. But neither of them stop to consider, what about the name of God? And friends, we don't consider that either. 
Because our flesh tendency is to think about ourselves. What about me? How's this going to affect me? And our tendency is to think about, well, how's this going to affect my family? Or here's our rights, and we demand our rights. Our flesh response, our navigational pull, gravity in our life is about ourselves and be concerned about ourselves. And yet the Scripture does show us one who's concerned about the name of his Father. Who doesn't come swinging a sword, but he comes bearing a cross. And He's the one who on that cross pays the due penalty for sin. The sin of Shechem would not be atoned for by the blood of Shechem. The sin of Shechem could only be rightly atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The murderous hearts of Jacob's sons can't be atoned for by them wiping out and plundering a city. The murderous hearts of Jacob's sons can only be rightly atoned for By Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Because all sin leads to death. And that penalty must be paid. And you and I have the choice. We will stand before a holy God. And we will foolishly say. Well I tried to live a pretty good life. (laughs) I never killed anybody. Jacob's sons couldn't say that. But we can I mean, I was a pretty decent person, God. I mean, there are a lot of people worse than me. So am I in? No. Sin, the wages of it is death. But there's a better way. Because we can stand before holy God and we can be covered. Not in religious practice, but in the blood of Jesus Christ, who... Our advocate then stands in our place and says, I covered that. I died for that. I atoned for that. So which are you trusting in today? You trusting in your name? You trusting in your actions? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? And if you are, if you're walking with Him, are you cautious? Or are you curious and you're walking towards sin and you're flirting with sin? Perhaps you find yourself in sin and you're trying to deal with it on your own. But what the Scripture says is, friend, repent, get out of the darkness and walk in the light. Wherever you are, the call is the same. Not do this, do this, do this, but trust this. Repent and have faith. Repent and have faith. Repent and have faith. If you would pray with me. Father God, I pray and ask in Jesus' name that we would be a people who would rightly repent, that we would turn from sin and we would walk with Christ. Not because we trust in ourselves, but that we would be a people who would trust fully in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross on our behalf and His atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so Lord, for any today who's yet to place their trust in you and repent and turn from sin, God, I pray that they would. And for those who have, Lord, but perhaps find themselves today curious, careless, flirting with sin, in sin, Lord, would you help them to see where that sin will take them? And Lord, would you help them to turn from it, to repent, to walk in faith.
and to call others to do the same. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.